And so now we're at this point where we finally have an answer as to as to what's going on with him. I think that was the moment that I realized how um not only how in pain he was, but how big of an issue this had all become. While we're sitting in that ER, he's starting to have withdrawal symptoms. His hand was shaking so bad that he almost couldn't get like <laughs> the water was like spilling everywhere. And so it was like really difficult to see him like that. He was a guy who who never cried, who never broke, who never really showed much weakness in general. He just looked so beaten down. I don't know if I can handle this. And I felt really bad feeling that way. But I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Hey, how's it going? Uh, you know, it's going. So last episode, uh, we kind of got into the meat of it um, in terms of everything that happened with my dad and uh, kind of the behind the scenes stuff before he died, what we were dealing with as a family. Um, we talked about his kind of slip into um, alcohol addiction, like full blown addiction and what that looked like. And most of that story, most of that is us piecing together various bits of information that we got over almost a year long period. And even after he died, we we still were learning a little bit more about that period of his life, uh, of our lives, I would say, because it's not like he was the most forthcoming about all of that during that time. So again, hindsight being 2020, we know a lot more about what was happening now than we did in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but we were kind of just dealing with the shock and the trauma I don't know, trauma, I guess, but it is traumatic to like find out somebody that you care about is struggling with something. And that's like a big struggle. So it's very. Well, and also he had been dealing with that stuff for much longer than we had known about. Like we had just found out about it um, and he had really been dealing with it on his own for months and months. And like we knew something was wrong, but we didn't really know what exactly it was. Um and so now we're at this point where we finally have an answer as to as to what's going on with him. We finally have an answer as to why everything seems to be falling apart in his, you know, with his mental health and, and in our family life and everything. So now we can finally do something about it. And you knew, as we kind of talked about, that he needed to go to detox to start with. It's not an end all be all as we ended the episode on last. It's just the first step. But you knew that that was the first step luckily and so let's uh let's start there so we we um kind of in progression of the story found out that he had this problem we we um i went upstairs we talked about it and you uh said we needed to take him to detox so i remember i remember that night when we went to the hospital and um and we're waiting for hours and hours and hours and nothing was moving. Um, why don't you talk about it a little bit? Yeah. Sure. I mean, obviously we mentioned in the last episode that like when your dad finally caved in, I guess, and told you what was going on, he was very adamant about not telling me because again, he was in this mindset of I can fix it myself. 
And as we mentioned in pretty detailed depth, like you cannot manage this type of thing by yourself. Um, Not only just because addiction in general needs an entire support system, but also because alcohol is dangerous when you're withdrawing from it. So I think that he wasn't happy going to the hospital. Um, Obviously, you have to go to the hospital first in order to get admitted. Well, that's not true. You can go straight to detox. um, But a lot of times those places have like a long waiting list or you have to try to coordinate it on your own. And when you're in the middle of struggling with something like that, it's not like the thing that you want to be working on, right? So going to the ER made the most sense because I knew that there would be resources available to us. So even if he wasn't able to get in detox from the ER, that he would, we would at least have the resources to know like what to do next. Right. Um, and he didn't want to go. Um, but I do think that he realized that he had no leg to stand on, so to say. Um, this was not something that he could fight, you know, like, especially with me as as stubborn as he was. Yeah, everything was out in the open finally. And, um, and that meant that he no longer could make the claim that he could fix it on his own because obviously it had come to a head to where he very clearly Mm -hmm. couldn't. And as much as he didn't want to go through this whole process, I think on some subconscious level he realized that he needed to and he realized that like Mm -hmm. fighting us was only going to make his life more difficult rather than easier and on some level he wanted to get better like he knew something was wrong he he obviously was very unhappy um and depressed and i don't think he wanted to feel that way but um right but he still had this he still was in this in the middle of the addiction brain as well of this means that I'm going to have to give up something that quite frankly, as twisted as it is, I love um, being alcohol. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of that where, where full blown addiction, you know, morphs your brain and, or warps your, your mind um, because you do get into that state of, this has become the most important thing in my mind, both or in my in my life, both physically and mentally, because it's the only thing that keeps me going. And then you start to not be you're you're unable to imagine a life without it. Yeah, which we covered, you know, in the last episode a bit, too. And I think so, again, going back to like him going into the hospital, obviously, as you mentioned, I working in a hospital on a cardiac floor literally having alcohol withdrawal patients because they need cardiac monitoring. I understood how incredibly dangerous um, alcohol withdrawal was. And I think that, you know, being perfectly honest, given the state that we were at and how bad it had gotten, if I think your dad knew this too, that if he became stubborn and absolutely refused. So I do think deep down he wanted to get the help because again, we've 
already said, like, Eric didn't do anything he didn't want to do. But I also think that he also recognized that it would, um, it was like a non-negotiable. Like, I wasn't gonna enable, like, that behavior. You know what I mean? Um, because he did need to get help. And, um, and already I'd been such a huge advocate for taking care of your mental health. So, like, I think he also just knew that he wasn't going to be able to, like, refuse this and not have maybe some not so great consequences as a result. Um, so that night that you found out, we went to the, I was thinking, like, big hospital. They probably see a lot of this. They'll have lots of resources. And unfortunately, it was not the right place to take him to. We went to a a very busy um, hospital and emergency room. And then because there was, again, some stigma around alcohol withdrawal and just alcohol in general, I get it now working in the ER because we do get a lot of really intoxicated people who are homeless or have something else going on who also, just looking for a bed yeah who also have no desire to actually do anything about it they just get better yeah mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, in the er we and get a lot of people who come in intoxicated whether it's from police picking them up or a paramedic picking them up or they're uh, homeless and just looking for a bed to sleep mm-hmm. on because it's cold outside or whatever and mm-hmm. they come into the er because they're too intoxicated to take care of themselves. So we end up essentially being mm-hmm. their babysitter and making sure that they don't, you know, vomit in their sleep or whatever. That they're safe. That they're safe. And yeah. then, you know, morning comes or they they sober up enough to where they can take care of themselves again. And we offer mm-hmm. detox or that we offer them resources to hopefully try to s- stop this behavior and fix their lives. And I would say probably... 80 to 90% of the time, people are just like, nope, I want to go home. And then they go and they- And then they do it all over again. And unfortunately, like- And they come back to the ER. Right. And unfortunately, (laughs) you know, that's their right. Like, alcohol is legal. We can't stop you from doing it. It's not like- um, we can't force you to go to detox. We can't force you to to go to those places and and get better. And so now there's Mm -hmm. even- you know, I've worked with doctors in the past who have this mentality of like, get them out of here before they start to withdraw, because then we have to admit them. Um, so if they're not going to take if they're not going to go to detox, if they want to keep drinking and, and ruining their life, and that's their decision. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at least get them out of the ER so that they're not wasting or not. I, I shouldn't say wasting, but they're not using up a bed upstairs when they're just going to go and drink again anyway. And there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and I think yeah. that that's an unfortunate, I think, ve- I think that's an unfortunate failure of our medical system as well, mm-hmm. uh, because we see that stuff so often and because of the laws in place and the way that things work and, uh, you know, just in society and, um, you know, you can't force people to help themselves. And so using, utilizing resources to help somebody who doesn't want to be helped ultimately ends up fruitless. Yeah. And it, it takes away from people who actually need those resources. Um, And so unfortunately, as a result of that, there is a bias that gets built up. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, and again, we, we went to really big, busy level one trauma center. Hindsight, 
probably not the best place to bring him. Um, they were extremely busy as most trauma centers are. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, Eric was just another intoxicated person. You know, it wasn't anything urgent. It and it was scary for us, but it wasn't anything urgent until in terms of a until he's at the point of withdrawal. Actively where withdrawing. Yeah, until he's at the point mm-hmm. of withdrawing where they're worried about him seizing or going into cardiac arrest or something. Like yeah. it's something that's not quote unquote an emergency compared to other things. And like when you triage in a hospital, right. you have to compare who needs to be seen first and who can wait. And and he happened to be one of the people who could wait quite a while before he needed right. to be seen. And so if you think about, so we sat there and it's you, me and your dad. And you think about the fact that like when you first started talking to him and he admitted this, um, he was intoxicated at the time because that was what triggered the conversation in the first place. place. Right. Um, But we sat at that ER for six hours in the lobby and it was still packed in in the, in the waiting room. Yep. And it was packed and you could see in your dad that he was at the point that if he wasn't drinking every couple hours, he was starting to have withdrawal symptoms because as that time went on further, not only from like the time he left the house, because obviously once he admitted that and you and we knew what was going on, it's not like he was going to go get another drink in yeah, front of us. No. Right. Um, and so or be able to sneak off, you know, without he us agrees- knowing what he's doing finally, you know. Exactly. And so he knows that this is. Obviously, he has to get the help. And um, unfortunately, you know, because he probably was drinking so much and so often, while we're sitting in that ER, he's starting to have withdrawal symptoms. Not anything bad. um, Very mild symptoms. But he was starting to get more irritable. And I get it. Like, he probably was embarrassed. He maybe... realized he needed the help but didn't necessarily really want to be there um and he's starting to get that like anxious feeling that comes with withdrawal and you know feeling uncomfortable and things like that so I remember we're sitting there and like we keep asking the charge nurse like you know and I explained it with him you know it's obviously they have to talk to him but like we were when we talked to the triage when we talked to them we just said like he needs detox so anyway it got to the point where he was getting so irritable about it that I was just like and honestly I was getting tired of waiting too and like the the waiting room was not clearing out like for every person that went back it filled right back up again so I'm just like we're not gonna get in for a long time and it had already been six hours so Given all of that consideration um, and the fact that he was getting crankier by the minute, I said, you know, this probably wasn't the right place for us to go. I'm okay with us going home right now because I think all of us are tired of waiting here. But the condition to that is that right away in the morning when we get up, we are going to a different hospital. Um, and we're going to get you into detox. And so he agreed to that because he 
just didn't want to be in that waiting room anymore. And he didn't really ultimately have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, not without consequences. Not- Everybody has a choice with everything. Right. But Well, he, he yeah. knew, yeah, ultimately with us, if he wanted to have, yeah. you know, if he wanted to redeem himself with us, he didn't have a choice. Right, exactly. So, uh, I'm sure that we talked that night a little bit. I don't know that we talked about anything deep because obviously he was still very emotionally cut off. Um, part of it probably was at that point the fact that he had, you know, his brain mm-hmm. was affected by like he was emotionally stunted as a result of like drinking so I much think- at that moment in I time. Think- and then also he just still, I think he was just embarrassed, oh, yeah. you know, like he didn't want to talk oh, about yeah. it. I think, um, you know, I remember, I think this was right after, like before we actually got him into detox, but when we got home that night, I'm pretty sure that's when this happened. But I remember getting home and it was dark out and we were all kind of standing in the kitchen and, um, mm-hmm. and he, you know, I was standing off to the side and we were all kind of just like exhausted from the day or from the night. Cause like that mm-hmm. conversation that we had it, that started this was at like nine o'clock at night. Like it wasn't early on in the day. It was already dark no. out by the time we went to the hospital. And so by this point, it was probably like three or four in the morning that we were getting yeah. home from the hospital, having accomplished basically nothing um, coming mm-hmm. up with this deal. But I think this was kind of the moment that it all really set in for all of us what was happening and like what was going to what our lives were going to look like Mm -hmm. for the next while as we tried to like resolve this as a family. I remember being very distraught because I kind of realized like being a 17 year old when, when I first had that conversation with my dad, I didn't realize the seriousness of what was going on. You know, I remember him saying like, I just don't want to when we had that conversation, like I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to, you know, not be able to ever have a drink again. And my first inclination was like, oh, you know, as long as we can get it under control, I don't think that'll be a problem. Now I look back and I realize at the level of addiction he was at, sobriety is pretty much the only option without him slipping back Mm -hmm. into that because of how it has warped his mind with an inclination towards alcohol at least sobriety for a very long time, if not forever. Um, I don't think Mm -hmm. that, you know, knowing what I know about addiction now, it's very extremely rare that somebody can be to that point of addiction and then take a break from alcohol and then be able to come back and enjoy it in a healthy manner. Um, That's so incredibly rare that it's almost 100% you need sobriety at that point. I didn't know that Mm -hmm. at that point. So I was like, oh, you know, it was a bit naive of me. Um, but it was at that moment that I really kind of, and why would you know, right? Why would you know that? You know, but I remember we got back and we were all standing in the kitchen and I remember very vividly, you know, he kind of broke down crying in your arms. Um, because I think not only was he embarrassed, but he was sad that his life had gotten to this point. Like he's sad that he let himself get to this point. Um, and so I think and we were all really sad. Yeah. Well. And so that was kind of the moment, I think, for me that I realized how much in pain he really was. 
And then, of course, mm-hmm. seeing my dad, the strongest person I've ever known, like one of the strongest people I've ever known, one of the the most amazing father I could have asked for, someone that I was so incredibly close to be in such a weak and vulnerable state, like hit me really hard. And I remember you saying mm-hmm. something along the lines of like, hey, you know, your son's having a hard time over there. You should go, you know, comfort him yeah. and let him know that you're going to try your best to to fix this and, and get better as a family. And that was a mm-hmm. a really difficult moment, I think, for all of us. But that was kind of the moment for me that I think that's why it stands out. Because earlier you and I were kind of talking about this in preparation for this episode. And you're like, I rem- you said, like, I don't really know if I remember that moment. But I think it stands out for me. Yeah, because, I do now as you talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I think it stands out for me in that time period as a very specific moment. Because I think that was the moment that I realized how... Um, not only how in pain he was, but how big of an issue this had all become within our family and mm-hmm. what, and started to realize this is going to affect all of our lives for a very long time from here on out, you know? Yeah. It's going to change a lot of things. It's um, going to be a journey basically. Well, and you know, unfortunately the nature of, any sort of substance use disorder is it involves a lot of lying and a lot of breaking of trust. So it wasn't, it was recognizing not only obviously that he was in that much pain, which was really hard to see, but also I know for me in the back of my mind, it was like realizing like this is going to be one long journey. Well, and I think, I think, you know, on that same point, that was something that I kind of started to wrap my brain around, too, is this person that my entire life we've had this very strong connection and open communication as a family and all this stuff. This person has been lying to us for almost half a year, if not even a little longer, Mm -hmm. you know, lying to our faces and doing it real and doing it really well. Yeah, and like doing it to the point where again, even then, you know, I I was a bit more naive than than I am now, uh being 17, but I still wasn't stupid. Like I could tell that something was wrong mm-hmm. and I and you especially are not a naive person either. Like mm-hmm. it's not like we're I would say generally I, I you know, both of us are fairly emotionally intelligent. Both of us are very good at with intuition and picking up on people's subtle tells. And he Mm -hmm. was extremely good at hiding what was actually going on and playing on playing on all of our kind of misperceptions about things or, you know, our trust. Mm Because that was the other thing is he definitely played on the fact that he knew we trusted him to hide what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so that realization was also, you know a scary thing to think about of like he has the capability to lie to us on that level. Well, and it's a sense of betrayal because he hadn't done that up until that point. And I think it just goes to show how much this type of stuff really hijacks your brain and changes who you are when it, when you're doing it so chronically like that. Well, Um, and that was the whole reason, you know, so much. That was the whole reason why I, that, 
the conversation started out with me saying, you mm-hmm. are not my dad when you act like this. And I didn't even know that mm-hmm. it was alcohol. That's how, but that's exactly yeah. what it was, is he did not act like the same person when he was under that influence. Um, and yeah. I, again. And he probably wasn't, and he wasn't thinking like he normally did. Because oh, yeah. again, it literally takes over your brain and how you deal with things and how you justify things and how you think about things and right. all of that. It's a, it's a. So that next morning, I was going to try to bridge into the next thing, but oh, I didn't yeah. mean to interrupt you. <laughs> I was just going to say it's just it's it's a very difficult disorder to deal with within a family unit because it's it's an actual disease, but there's a component to it that's very personal in the sense that these the the part of the disease is that it involves hurting people that you care about. And on one level you can recognize that this is not within their control, right? Because that's the whole point. It's gotten out of control. But it feels very personal. And at this, it is, it feels very personal. And at the same time, like what you experience on the other end of it is still valid. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they did it on purpose or not, you still have experienced, you know, the, the results of, of, that the, path, the lying you know? and the betrayal and the um mm-hmm. you know the cut addiction is is a disease it's a sickness just like a physical illness but it's much worse in a lot of ways because it affects all of your relationships in a negative way right and um exactly you know and it doesn't take much to get to that point either you know he for a long time no you know, he was trying to manage everything but it was very apparent you know, looking back, the first thing that started to suffer was his relationship with us because he mm-hmm. shut his guard, his walls went up and he shut down and he stopped doing stuff with us and he stopped paying attention and he stopped, you know. Now, that next morning, I didn't go with you guys to yes. take him to detox. You, um, you just took him alone. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember if you had. I was tired and like school? I think I just slept in. I think I was just tired and or just that you were just like I can't deal with this. Yeah, right now. I think I just um, didn't. It was one of the two. when we got home that night before. I think I was just like I'm just gonna sleep. You take him to you know detox in the morning and because mm-hmm. um, I think I was exhausted and I just you know I I didn't after being at the hospital for six hours. It's like I don't think I really need to go. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I think too you're you're just trying to wrap your head around what's happening. Um as was I, but like I had a better understanding of it than you did. Um so yeah, we went to the we went to a different hospital. Um and I will forever be grateful um because this particular ER the triage nurse was so incredibly kind and they brought him back to a room right away and they were so um, just gentle and nurturing and kind to him. And, you know, again, this is a person that we loved. So being in a place where I felt like they were seeing him as a human versus just an intoxicated person, um, like I 
that is something I'll never forget. And I still, to this day, am super grateful for that because I do think that if we had gone to the hospital and there was a lot of judgment in that case, um, your dad might've walked out, you know what I mean? And so sometimes I think that like God played a role in that because I know there were a lot of prayers during that time too, of like, he needs this help. Um, because I do think if he had started to feel really judged or dismissed that he, because at that time when we got to the, to the ER in the morning, he was in active withdrawal because he hadn't drank all night and he hadn't drank since the conversation. And so, um, you know, it, withdrawal is so incredibly uncomfortable and painful that imagine your worst, that's all you can, your worst hangover times 10, (laughs) you know, it's well, and like, it's a feeling of what I've heard from people is like a feeling of literally wanting to like crawl out of your skin Mm -hmm. and just not being able to. And so I do, I just, I'm so thankful that they were so kind and considerate, like everyone, the nurses, the triage nurse, the doctor, et cetera. And um, they started medicating them right away, which was appropriate because when we got there, um, I remember he went to take uh, the medication, which was Ativan, um, which is a benzodiazepine, which is what they treat alcohol withdrawal with. Um, Essentially to taper your system back to regular. um. Right. And literally when he was taking the cup to drink with the pill, I mean, his hand was shaking so bad that he almost couldn't get like (laughs) the water was like spilling everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was like really difficult to see him like that because again, we never, I mean, he would have like little tremors and things like that, but he also again had his family has that like just a little bit of a tremor in their hands in general. Like that's a, a hereditary thing. And so, you know, it's not like we didn't ever see his hand shake a little bit, but it was it had nothing to also do with something alcohol that before. he'd always done. Right. So to see him really in active withdrawal and like really see how incredibly bad this had gotten. Um, I don't even, it was just, I didn't even know what to think about it or how to feel about it. Um, well, and he was a guy who like, you know, We've talked about his kind of showing emotion and stuff. He was a guy who who never cried, who never broke, who never mm-hmm. really showed much weakness in general. Like, I don't. He did to me a, a few times, but that was in private. But and again, we had private in a different relationship, right, in yeah. an intimate, close relationship. You know, with your spouse, mm-hmm. that's a different thing than just in general. Like to me, I had never seen him. I think the first time I ever saw him cry was when my grandpa died. And that was like the one and only time yeah. that I saw him cry. And it wasn't even really crying. It was like a couple tears, you know. And yeah. like he wasn't, he he just, even when he was tired or he cranky was... or, you know, in a bad mood or like, um, you know, exhausted or whatever. He was never, he was never a complainer. He was never the guy who showed weakness or, uh, you know broke down or struggled in any of those in any of those ways with 
pretty much anything, it felt like. And then to see him in this state where he was so incredibly broken down. Yeah, it was a very difficult thing to watch. Um, And again, thankful that the detox um, facility that this particular hospital preferred to refer to, which was a good detox facility, had an opening for him, which, again, super appreciative of that. We had to wait for a while um, in the ER, in the hospital, um, before they could transfer him over because, as we know now, working in the ER, um, to be medically nothing cleared. ever moves fast. All that. And- well, it wasn't even that, just nothing ever, nothing ever moves fast. Um, unless you're dying. If things are going really fast, then you should be worried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in your that, that's always the- <laughs> especially if it's busy. If you're in the emergency room and uh, you know, I've seen this a lot with it's kind of funny, I've seen this a lot with especially patients who are like on the verge of cardiac arrest or like their their EKGs show something scary or they're like in SVT where they need to be cardioverted or something. A lot of times those patients just come in with like oh, my chest feels funny or, oh, I feel flutter in my, in my chest. And then, uh-huh. and then we see something and everybody floods into the room and there's a million things happening. And it's like, I remember I had one guy once who was, who said exactly that. He's like, I've never had anything. I've never been to an ER where things were happening this fast before. And this is terrifying. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, if things are moving really quickly here, it means that there's something seriously, seriously wrong. Um, and we need to be on mm-hmm. top of and it. And especially if it's, Especially if it's a busy ER. Um, I mean, it's if you have a slower ER, that's a different story. But uh, yeah, so we were waiting to get his bed. I remember I walked down to get down to like, uh, it was a university hospital. So like they had a campus and whatnot. And so I went down to go get us food um, and get him like Gatorade and some of that stuff to kind of help balance some stuff out. Um and yeah, it was just, it was so painful to see him shake so bad and just have like visible withdrawal symptoms, like not just little withdrawal symptoms, like, you know, heavy withdrawal symptoms. Did they give him a banana? Um, I don't remember. It's just a common um, vitamin bag full of, you know, a, a IV drip with a bunch of vitamins in it that we I, give in the ER because it, it's yeah. yellow, so we call it a banana bag. But I was just curious. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also because when you drink alcohol, you deplete. They're like you're usually low on thiamine and folic acid and a lot of a couple like really key. a lot of your B vitamins and then like potassium, magnesium, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Yeah, the, your electrolytes get really messed up. Actually, I do not think that they did. I think they um, just were giving him the oral um, medicine to help manage his symptoms. And then the detox he was going to was medically assisted, as in they mm. continued to give medication. So I believe he got his like vitamin replenishment via just taking a oral pills. Yeah, at the at the detox facility. Um, it was very weird. Uh, I couldn't go with him. Yeah. You know, because he was in the ER, they had to tra- they had to transport him by ambulance to cardiac and, monitoring and all that stuff. Well, no, it, it wasn't even about that. It's just 
that's kind of the, the protocol, right? If you're getting admitted and you're transferred to a different hospital or a different part of the hospital. And again, this was a university hospital, so they had buildings. Well, and he's getting in multiple places. He's getting admitted to a medical unit, so they have to be able to monitor him during the transport as well. So that's kind of the purpose of that. Exactly. And because it's detox and it is a locked facility and there were very strict rules around visitation and all of that stuff, like I didn't, I couldn't go with him, which was really difficult for me because I don't you know, wanted to like support I was him always. Yeah. And we always, I don't know, like, yeah, I, I, you, I just had always been there when stuff was going on and, um, I had to leave the ER before, you know, they arrived to transport him. And it just was really hard to leave him there. And it also was really difficult because they take your cell phone away. They, I mean, they take everything and lock it up. I mean, and the whole purpose of that is to solely have you focused on, um, I mean, you meet with a psychiatrist, you meet with therapists, you are getting medicated, you're learning about different resources for you're learning about you're learning about Um, addiction in and of itself and alcohol dependence and all of that stuff because a lot mm -hmm. of people who end up in that position know nothing about what they're actually going through um exactly so it's it's like and i it's also interesting because you know people get really weird about that protocol in the er when people come in for mental health Mm -hmm. issues including you know, addiction and needing of detox and that sort of thing. We do take all of your belongings and we lock them up. Uh, you know, not that you won't get them back, obviously, but uh, and then we put you in mental health scrubs so that you're identified as um, as a mental health patient rather than a medical patient. Um, and not that other patients know right. this. This is just for staff. Right. But it's also... It's a. It tends to be a safety thing, and and you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that everybody needs that level of uh, protection or or that level of security or or whatever. But it's a blanket because there are a lot of people who who do need that if they're going to get any better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a safety mechanism of because people who are not in their in their right minds will you know, in psychosis or, or not in touch with reality will try to mm-hmm. try to run away they can and they can't harm t- themselves. Yeah. Or they can't take care of themselves and they could harm can- themselves or other people. And so it, it becomes a safety issue as well. So that's the reason for those protocols, yeah. but it's still a scary thing to go through because it's, it feels like you're going to jail yeah. almost. It, ki- it, it honestly did. And then obviously when we visited later, it literally kind of felt like a jail. Yeah. Um, but I just remember driving home, uh, well, first of all, before we before I even left, so my wedding ring, um, I had it was a double band. I had it soldered. Uh, is it soldered? Soldered together? Mm-hmm. Is that the word? Yeah, I think so. I don't know why. I don't know why that sounds weird. Yeah, you you're an engagement um, band in your wedding. I had. Band. Um. Yes, um, because I didn't like them twisting around separately. So they were together as one. And I didn't, because I had been, you know, actively practicing as a nurse at this point for a couple of years. um, 
I would take my ring off um, to go to work because water would get caught in in the crevices and then my finger would get like you know gross raw from that yeah and so I prior to that I had worn my wedding ring the entire time we had been married I never took it off maybe to put lotion on once in a while but I was so used to wearing it that I immediately could tell if it wasn't on you know so like i didn't take it off. Well, because I had started to get in this habit of taking it off for work and obviously I was working, you know, a regular schedule. I was starting to not notice if I had it on or not. Right. And I remember specifically, <laughs> I wish I hadn't, um, putting it on when we went to the hospital because I don't know, I just, felt like I wanted to have it on. Um, and anytime I wash my hands, I have, or use like hand sanitizer, I have to put lotion on. It's literally like nails on a chalkboard for me. If I do not put lotion on after I wash my hands, that like dry feeling, I just can't stand it. And so there were a couple times that I took my ring off, put it in my lap, put the lotion on. But then I would remember that it was sitting there and I put it back on. And when I got home, I realized I didn't have my ring and I had lost it. And, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was, uh, that exact scenario. I think I took it off to put lotion on when I got up to leave. It probably rolled on the floor somewhere. I, to this day, I'm pretty devastated about that um, because we designed that ring together. I mean, I designed it, but like we were, you know, it was something that we did together. Um, yeah. It was special. And, it was and obviously it had it for a long time. Yeah. It was my wedding ring and my engagement ring. Um, and I called the ER immediately when I realized that I didn't have it. They couldn't find it, of course, and it was gold, and obviously it was, and it didn't have a diamond in it. It was a sapphire, um, just a square sapphire or princess cut. But being where the hospital was, and there being a decent, you know, population of like homeless people or people, I mean, it it went it missing. It's something, something that, to it. yeah, it's some. It's something that somebody would totally grab and try to self, you know, pawn it off, right? And uh, so they couldn't find it. I I think I called Lost and Found, like, several times over the course of the next couple weeks just to see if it popped up anywhere. Never did. I think at some point, like, a, a few months later, I put, like, a post on Facebook and just asked everybody to share, share, share it on the hopes that maybe somebody would have maybe seen it in like a pawn shop or cause it was very distinct and very like unique. It wasn't like a traditional ring and um, yeah, never found it to this day. Um, and so that was sad for me that like, here we are dealing with this thing, this issue and he's sick and not doing well. And then on top of it, like, I felt the need to put my ring on and then because I was so distracted, I lost it. And, um, and of course it got much worse, you know, a few, however many months later when he was no longer with us and it's like, 
<sighs> just the timing yeah. of all of that is terrible. It was awful. And then I remember driving home and I remember um, listening to a song. It was called Stop Lying uh, or Stop Lying. Um, and it so encompassed kind of like what I was feeling at the time in terms of just feeling sort of betrayed and um yeah like you know that this person that I you know had loved dearly for a long time you know was lying to me um to that to this day when I hear that song it reminds me of that drive back from the detox facility to or from the hospital to our house. And then I also remember that was the time, because again, I needed support. Like on one level, we weren't in a place where I was just going to tell anybody what was going on because we were trying to figure it out on our own. And honestly, it, it, you know, it was Eric's story to tell and it wasn't anybody's business at that point. But me needing support also. And it's not like I'm going to talk to you about this in the extent that I needed to talk about it, because again, you're our child and you were, you know, a teenager. Um, so I did call, uh, my grandma, the, your great grandma, the one that we talk about a lot. Um, cause I was really close to her and I remember having a conversation with her on the phone. Are really close to her. And I also, not yeah, are. She- yeah, sorry. <laughs> And we are really closer. Um, just because I needed to talk to somebody about it. Um, because I was in this like level of disbelief. Like I can't believe I'm going through this right now. Like I just can't believe that this is the thing that is happening. And I think for me, it was also because of the fact that my sister was an active, like severe addiction at that point. And, um, I had been very involved in helping get her kids into safe places. And one of them lived with us for a while. And, um, and I saw the ups and the downs and just the whole gamut of everything that happens in severe, severe addiction. And I remember thinking and actually praying like I don't know if I can handle this. And I felt really bad feeling that way, but I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can handle, you know, dealing with this situation where I'm confident that it's not going to be an easy path. And I'm confident that it's going to probably get worse before it gets better because he did have that mentality of like, I can fix it myself and any research, any alcohol treatment program or substance use treatment program will tell you that you cannot typically um, fix it on your own. It's a family issue. It's a dynamic. It involves relationships. It's all sorts of things. And so I just remember feeling really overwhelmed and like, I just don't know if I can handle this. And kind of like, what am I going to do? You know, because like I was generally the strong one, you know, I was always strong and I just was like, just, I, I really was 
I just don't even know like how to deal with it or process it. And then it was really weird just leaving him there and like not being able to call him, not being able to text him, you know, always, um, we always talked, you know, several times a day, we texted often. And so it was, um, obviously a little foreshadowing, I guess, or like, you know, a little taste of what was to come, but it was weird not being able to just get a hold of him and be like, what's going on. And then you worry, you know, like, is he okay? Is he feeling okay? Like what is, you know, what's going through his head? So those are the things that really stood out for me, um, around, you know, taking him to the detox itself. And then, you know, after, he was there for probably four or five days. Um, just, you know. Yeah, it was between three and five. The minimum was three. The maximum t- typically was five just because it wasn't a treatment facility. It literally was just a detox facility. Just to make sure that you um, which went through gives- withdrawal in a safe manner, basically. Um, but to the point where you're, the alcohol is out of your system f- physically. I have no idea what. I don't know. And I don't remember anything about that entire week other than the one day we went and visited him. Like I have no, I have no, no remembrance of any, anything else that I did during that period other than I remember, I think it was after like two days or so we went to go see him just to see how he was doing. And and like for like, it was like an hour of visitation that we had with him. And yeah, that was a really, can I, can I, can I stop you for a second? I'm so sorry. I have to pee again. <laughs> okay. I know. I literally, it's like so bad. <laughs> I'll be really back. Sorry, I was going to try to hold it, but I literally would have peed my pants, I think. <laughs> I'm going to put that in my um. episode. I'm, put it, I'm putting that part in. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, we got to keep it. We got to keep it real, right? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, you were saying that you don't really remember much about that week other than the day we went to visit him. I The only thing I remember about that week outside of visiting him is just it being so strange. To, like, again, processing what just happened. Right. And then it being so strange that I literally couldn't get a hold of, you know, I couldn't just talk to him and I couldn't. And they... You know, and again, this is privacy laws, so I couldn't just call and get information on how he was doing either, you know, Mm -hmm. because he, you know, HIPAA laws. So, like, even though he's my husband, I don't have automatic permission to get an update on his medical condition. Not to mention that they typically, I think, in that type of environment, don't give that information out anyways, um, even if, like, the person's okay with it. So it just was so weird, you know, having to, um, like having no contact with him because mm-hmm. like literally talked to him a bazillion times a day. So then we went to go visit him and, uh, that was a very profound experience for me personally, I think, because he, well, again, it's like a prison and I wasn't there when you dropped him off. So I, I had no, I was very unsure. I didn't. And s- I wasn't there either. Well, I had not been because I was in the oh, ER. Yeah, so right. like uh, this was the actual detox facility. So this was kind of my first, uh, both of our, I would say, first interactions with this sort of place. But yeah, you know, we went in and um, everything was locked and, and we had to leave. We had to 
put our stuff in a locker outside of the unit, um, our phones, our wallet, our and keys. it was for safety to not to not be sneaking something in for mm-hmm. the person that's there or other people. The phones were protection because of patient privacy. Yep. I mean, yeah, so you have to lock everything up. And we go in and and you know we sit down at a table and he comes out and I don't think he looked so terrible like he looked sickly he was shaking he was in an orange you know uh orange scrubs mental health scrubs um and he he just looked so beaten down in general yeah i was gonna say the same thing as that his it just you could tell he was in really rough shape and you know he was Mm -hmm. still i mean his hands were shaking i think he was trying to control it too because he didn't i I could tell Mm -hmm. that he didn't want us to see him in that state and he was trying so hard to to present himself especially you because everything was okay and yeah i think for me especially he didn't want me to see him that way but you know like i said before this was another one of those very profound moments for me where i realized like how serious all of this was and how you know incredibly sad and and messed up he was and you know this the gravity of of what he was going through and i remember that made me and that it was yeah and that was literally it was gonna change our lives moving forward forever Uh, again not realizing that what was to come was gonna even change our lives even more but like and it was nothing was gonna be the same after that it was so difficult to see him like that it was very sad to see you know someone who i viewed as like my hero to be beaten down and broken like that and i don't remember much about what we talked about or what we did in that conversation it was only like an hour it went by so fast and then we left and then i remember being extremely frustrated and angry with him because again naive 17 year old mm-hmm. didn't know anything about really addiction or or any of um you know let me stop you there too it wasn't that you were naive cuz you were not a naive teenager it's just that you had not had exposure to this what stuff i before. what i mean by saying naive is naive to this situation i had never experienced yeah, anything like this i had zero Fair. understanding of you know, alcohol addiction specifically, or, you know, I had a little bit of understanding of addiction dealing with your sister and like seeing you deal with that stuff. But like having it happen to my dad and having it be something like alcohol, which again, like in this moment, I had my own stigmas. I now looking back, I realize how flawed my thinking was. But in that moment, Mm -hmm. my only interaction with I remember leaving and saying, great, now my dad, now I have an alcoholic dad. Like, my dad's an alcoholic. I remember you saying yeah, that as well. Yeah, we were walking through to the par- through the parking garage, and I remember being so frustrated and angry, and, like, I remember thinking my dad was weak. I remember, th- like, kind of losing my respect for him in a little, in, in a lot of ways, you know, that he couldn't control himself around alcohol and, like, all of these things. Um, and I remember, yeah, I remember, I mean, my only interaction with what was happening was what's portrayed in the media, which is like, 
the the drunk father who's a deadbeat or like the angry abusive kind of stuff and i knew that wasn't my dad but he obviously had this issue and and my perception of it was that he was weak and that was not right yeah and it, but in the moment i think oh you know i i was going to say i think also just the the in addition to your own bias and stigmas it's also being very consciously aware of the fact that like other people were going to judge him as well what? and we did care about that was the other thing him. is it's like yeah now now i have to deal with other people's stigma as well and i and i have mm-hmm. to and my dad is going to have to deal with that and like you know but i i do remember being very much in this mode of like great my dad's an alcoholic we're that family now, you know, and looking back, I think that's, you know, I felt that way for, um, again, because I lacked understanding of what was really going on, but I really do regret feeling that way, which is a weird thing to say because like, you can't you control can't, how exactly. you feel. But mm-hmm. I wish I didn't view that situation the way that I did in that moment. Yeah. I remember very specifically, um, I think while he was at detox, um, you had uh, a moment kind of around the same topic um, where you were laying on the floor uh we had like a landing in between all the bedrooms and the bathroom upstairs and you were just laying there and you just kept saying, you know, you know, now I'm something along the lines of like, now I've, you know, have a messed up family and now I have, you know, again, like the alcoholic dad, you know, and, you know, we've worked so hard to not have this type of thing. And, and you were angry with your dad around like, how could he do this to us? I had, I had Um, and I do suddenly kind of found myself in the position where I no longer was normal. Yeah. I was, yeah, it was that moment of, you know, I felt, I immediately felt, like an shame yeah Yeah, i think Mm -hmm. that's a good way of putting it i immediately felt and i think like i was now somebody who was different than everyone else yeah and then also just like i think sometimes you know talking about the shame piece of it and this kind of comes back to i think why you and i want to wanted to do this podcast and really talk so in depth about this subject openly is because there is a lot of shame that comes with it. And it's not just the shame of the person who is dealing with the situation or dealing with the illness, but it's shame for everyone that's involved because of the fact that we have such a stigma around substance use disorder and alcohol disorder and, um, those mental health in general. And so there's such a huge stigma that like, it almost makes you feel like there must be something wrong with us. If 
this person in our family is struggling with this like mm-hmm. horrible thing, right? Um, because it feels like a moral failing. And that's something that our country uh, has perpetuated. Our society has perpetuated that, you know, you got the war on drugs, you've got all this propaganda and it's all about, um, you know, there's just no compassion for people who are in that situation at this point. There is all of this medical research now that, proves that this is a disorder it's a disease that it is a you know it's a brain disease and yet there's so much stigma wrapped around it and there's so much bias and um and the idea and people the idea that it's just don't understand the idea that it's your choice it was your choice to get into Mm -hmm. this position you know, it was your choice to drink the alcohol. It was your choice to take whatever drug. Which it was, you know, is asinine. Yeah, and well, it's asinine. I mean, first of all, you know, he wasn't an addict for the entire up until six months for like nineteen <laughs> yeah, years. You know, he drank alcohol <laughs> and he, you know, just normally like everybody else, never had you know didn't really have an issue with it. Until all of a sudden, things got too difficult for him to cope healthily, um, or he was lacking. It was a perfect storm of things, right? And then, and then suddenly, oh, this thing that I is familiar to me also seems to help me with my problems, um, and yeah. that's how that that slowly slipped into into taking place. But you know, there is this perception of. Well, you never had to take a drink in the first place. And if you didn't, you wouldn't be. In a- the thing is, is when it comes to addiction or, you know, it can be anything. That disease of addiction can be literally any. Haven't you ever seen the TLC, like my strange addiction thing? Like it's more common mm-hmm. with certain substances because they do hijack your your pleasure centers and they on a chemical level make you feel better. But like. There mm-hmm. are people who are addicted to video games the same way that you can be addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. There are people who are addicted to to sex gambling. and gambling and all of those things in the same mm-hmm. way and yet it and and yet sometimes those things don't have the same stigma because um even though they still have the same impact on your relationships and your life and your mental state as exactly. everything else. Um but it could be anything. It's just a ma- addiction mm-hmm. stems from not coping with something in your life in a healthy manner, in a productive manner. And the inability of cope yeah. leads you to do things that make you feel better, um, even if they're destructive in the long term. And they make you feel better in the short term. And and yeah, and there's there's higher risk also if you have genetics that play into that, too. Mm-hmm. So if you have a family history of it you're more uh, susceptible to falling into that, especially if you don't have good coping mechanisms. And I think, you know, that's why I said it's asinine be- around people sort of having this attitude around like, well, they sh- you know, they made the choice to have the first drink that, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, um, drug addiction and um, alcoholism as like, you know, yeah, maybe it's a disease, 
whatever, but like they still made the choice to have the first drink or they still made the choice to take the first pill or do all those things. And when I say like that's absolutely asinine, it's because literally majority of people in this world have tried some sort of substance at one point in their life, including alcohol. Especially alcohol. Like we just said, like we just said, alcohol is part of our culture. It's a social thing that we do. It's literally the most so, common drug in the entire world besides caffeine. Besides caffeine and nicotine, yeah. you know, and like, um, and so, and then, you know, even opioid addiction, a good chunk of people who become addicted to opioids, it starts with a prescription because they have legitimate physical pain. Mm-hmm. And then they, it transitions into them using it to cope with their emotional pain. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's so, um, ignorant to sort of go back to this blame game of there's something wrong with you because you chose to have the first drink or you chose to do this first and we all choose to do that on it's some not level. it's not the substance the difference that's is the issue that that's the biggest thing. right and the dif- yeah and the difference is is that it could have been you nobody knows until you start doing it you know like you don't know if you're going to have a trouble with alcohol unless you drink alcohol you don't know that you're going to be addicted to painkillers unless you start taking painkillers so like you know people don't start out with this intention of like i want to ruin my life right that's why it's a disease that's why it's called addiction you know that's why it gets out of control and it always starts with i like the way you put it um you know, they it usually starts with a very normal um, and acceptable way of getting into it of mm-hmm. like, you know, you have a drink, you turn 21 and you have drinks with friends or you're in college for a lot of cases and they, you know, they binge drink or they um, because because that's the culture. But it, it, mm-hmm. it uh, or like you said, with the opioid prescription, you know, it's they need it for a physical ailment and then they start then it transitions into this also seems to help my emotional pain. It makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the ultimate crux of addiction is it starts out as with good intentions of this makes me feel better. This makes my mental pain feel better. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then it snowballs and eventually it's not like a, it's not like an overnight thing. Nobody, nobody who's ever tried any drug, is immediately addicted to it ever. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, it's anybody who goes to the That's hospital <laughs> and gets dilated because they broke their leg mm-hmm. would be immediately addicted mm-hmm. to heroin because it's the same thing. Like, you yeah. know, it, it, it it's a it's a slow progression of using it to using whatever you're using, whatever you end up addicted to. It starts out as using it to cope with something that's going on in your life. Exactly. And then it snowballs from there and exactly. becomes that disease. And so it can happen to anybody if they don't have solid coping mechanisms because they start using and I, negative ones. Yeah. And I think it just comes back to like that shame piece and the guilt. And this is where the stigma comes in. And I mean, you and I even felt it like after your dad died, the thing that we had suspicions about was the fact that there might be alcohol involved and especially because there was alcohol in his room 
And obviously we still didn't know at this point, right? We're just doing some backstory, right? To give context to what led up to this. But like there was a level of shame and embarrassment that comes with like, uh, well, also protection. Like we said before, very protective. We didn't want to, we didn't want the gossip mill to be going around Eric about something that he was privately dealing with if that wasn't the thing that contributed to his death, because we didn't want him to be remembered right. that way. Um, and it comes back to the fact that there is just this huge um, stigma and, and it all comes down to like shame and embarrassment and the mentality and the attitude that there's a moral failing with a person who struggles with this disorder. And that's just not true. Well, and again, Again, hindsight being 2020 and like knowing what we know now, both being in the medical field, both having dealt with this a lot more in our lives, both having gone through this, you know, this situation in general, now have a much deeper understanding of all these things, which again is part of the reason why we wanted to do the podcast is to to bring to light some of these issues. But mm-hmm. when this was all going down, like I had no prior knowledge, so I had my own stigmas. You even though you had dealt with a lot of it in the past, like you, I'm sure you still had your biases and, and stigmas about what was going on as well. And um, I think for me, it wasn't even bias and stigmas. It was. I dealt with this stuff with my family and I saw how devastating it was. And I just never in a million years thought that I would be in a position of having to deal with that in my own family. Right. Right. In your, in your immediate family. And so mm. then, you know, we get. We he finally gets released from detox. Um, and I, I remember, you know, and I think we can get into this in the next episode, but there was a solid. I mean, from the time he got released from detox, which was in December, um, you know, he was sober and trying really hard to get better um up until he obviously very suddenly and randomly died um and again we had no idea what it was he was sober up until his death uh you know and he he you know you had that conversation with him about after detox is the first step so then afterwards it was Mm -hmm. the next steps of trying to get him better trying to hit keep him sober therapy medications you know trying to get his depression under control trying to get him healthy coping mechanisms so that he's not feeling the need to turn to alcohol still trying to deal with the habit of alcohol so we had to get rid of everything in the Mm -hmm. house because at that point Mm -hmm. even beyond addiction it's just a habit and habits themselves are Mm -hmm. hard to break let alone an addiction where you know they say a habit takes 20 21 days to break which is extremely difficult for many people to to break just a general habit i know yeah i know everyone has kind of their own personal opinions about this but i just didn't feel like it was helpful to have the very thing that he was struggling with in the house it didn't mean that i stopped drinking alcohol i mean i definitely to this day i don't drink as much alcohol as i did before and I didn't even drink a lot of alcohol before. I was just more of a social drinker, but like um the experience was so 
I guess, traumatizing Well, uh, in a way it, that like I didn't even have a desire for alcohol. So I didn't feel like it was fair to keep it around and just like shove it in his face. Well, like here it is. Also, you know what like, I mean? We're as a family trying to support him in being sober so that he can get better and not be in this state. And, you know, having having the temptation, you know, they say the first the, the easiest way to stop eating junk food is to not have it in your house right it's the same same thing with alcohol it's like he we're trying he's trying not to drink he's trying to be sober so why would we keep it readily accessible to him um and so you know there's all these things that kind of went into the next few months of our lives of trying to to make things better and trying to to heal his mind and and provide him healthy coping mechanisms and get him back to the eric that we knew and ultimately, he was. He was making a ton of progress. Uh, he was getting. He yeah. was getting so much better. And I think we can. We'll we'll talk about that in the in the next episode. Yeah, I think so. And then one thing I think that I'd love to cover. I mean, which we can maybe just touch on briefly. I think it might be a good way to end. Um, you have mentioned this before. I have seen this. Um, with people around us and not like our inner circle close friends. Well, even some of them, the, the rider dies that we have, but some of our good friends, I mean, um, you know, they have, a, there's a lot of people that have opinions and personally, I think it's kind of invasive and it's a little bit inappropriate to make those judgments and those assumptions. But I mean, how many times do you get asked about or commented on around your own drinking of alcohol because of all of this yeah i um you know especially it took a long time for us to really talk about with anybody close to us even of what was going on behind the scenes until way later but but once i got comfortable with sharing the story in general Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people obviously were curious because it's not very often you hear an 18 year old who just lost their dad. Like, so I would meet new people and everyone's naturally curious. And I became more used to that and more comfortable with it because it's like, yeah, it's a thing that happened um, and it has affected my life. And again, I'm of the mentality that being open and honest about that stuff gives people more perspective, hence the podcast in general. But mm-hmm. a question I would always mm-hmm. get is so, you know, you, and to this day, you still get this yeah, question. Like you you must not drink alcohol, or do you drink alcohol because of that? Um, and, you know, I don't drink a lot. I drink maybe socially. Um, it's not very often. Or like after, you know, sometimes after work, come home and unwind with a beer or something like that. But like very rarely do I drink outside of social situations. Um, but it's always an interesting question because, you know, people assume that because you've had this experience that you're sworn off of alcohol and that it's like this terrible thing. And the important thing to remember is for me, and what I always would say is I don't have an issue with alcohol like he did. And actually, because of that situation, I'm probably a lot more self-aware of my drinking habits than most people are. You know, he he mm-hmm. would drink because he's socially anxious and then he would drink because to, to help with his anxiety or his depression and whatever. And I when I'm in those modes, 
of like feeling anxious or I almost purposefully avoid alcohol because I don't want to go down that path of using it as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and s- well, and I think people have opinion opinions too, because of, I mean, there are some genetic components to it. So it's like, well, your dad had it. So like, do you, you know, do you, but I think the, it's the way people approach well, it. And it's not even just like curiosity. It's like a, a statement of judgment. I've even had people who it. directly tell me like, you need to be more careful with alcohol because your dad was, had this issue. And it's like, you don't think I, right. you don't think Super I rude. know that first of all, yeah, that's rude. But also you don't think that I know that like, however, mm-hmm. again, the difference is, is when, especially when he was in full-blown addiction, but he had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. He was using it as a coping mechanism. He, you know, used it as a tool to calm his mind. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, I'm very attuned to the reasons why I drink it, you know, if, and when I do drink. Um, and ultimately that's not really anybody else's business anyway. So, no. um, I think people are naturally curious and that that's fine. Um, but yeah. the, assu- and the I assumption, do think it come- the assumption that because he had an issue, I'm automatically going to have an issue with it mm-hmm. was always a, a bit patronizing to me because it's like, I'm not, I'm not my father. I have a very mm-hmm. strong and high understanding now of what he was going through and what led to that. And it actually probably makes me more cautious around those things than most people are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I think we've touched on a lot. Uh, uh, it's kind of redundant at this point, but alcohol is the byproduct. Drugs are the byproduct. Sex addiction is the byproduct. Gambling is the byproduct. Any addiction, shopping addiction, it's a byproduct. The bi- it's the It's not what you're addicted to that's the problem. It's what is underneath that is driving the addiction. And so... You know, I think one of the things that, especially for me growing up in the environment I did and always being a person who is very focused on self-development and growth and keeping and continuing to nurture my emotional and mental wellness, right, because of the disasters I saw growing up, um, I was also very cognizant. So even though your dad was very resistant to um, anything having to do with mental health and trying to address that up until after he went to detox, um, that was something that I really worked hard with you about from a very young age. And, you know, it was so much more important for me for you to have emotional intelligence, self-awareness, to understand your emotions, to articulate them to be able to connect the dots to understand you know why things happen the way that they happen and how to deal with them and like what types of things are good you know are healthy coping mechanisms because this is way before I even the thing with your dad was even an issue it was just in general growing up in an environment where nobody coped with anything healthy around me, you know, so like not wanting to perpetuate that on my side. And so I do think that that works in your favor in the sense that you are very self-aware. You're, you do constantly work on your emotional health and 
you're not afraid to ask for help. You're not afraid to go to therapy if you need to. You're not even afraid to get on medication if you need to. Um, because you recognize the importance of having to actually manage that so that it doesn't become something that gets out of control. And because of that, you know, I would say that, you know, not that, not that I don't have my own, you know, things that I struggle with from now and then, but because of that, I've gotten to a point where I don't need medication anymore. I've gotten to a point where, you Mm -hmm. know, I have healthy coping mechanisms and I am happy, uh, you know, on my own and, you know, I don't, I don't struggle with anxiety like I used to. I don't have my bouts of depression like I used to, you know, I, there's things that swing and ebb and flow and that's just life. And, but I've learned how to deal with those things when they come up in an effective way that minimize Mm -hmm. the damaging effects of those things, you know, on my life. Um, and not to say, again, not to say I don't get anxious or don't get stressed out or don't have, you know, seasonal depression once in a while or whatever. Because I think, especially in this day and age, most people struggle with those ebbs and flows of of um, mm-hmm. emotional stress. But But I've learned ways to deal with them in a healthy way to where they don't take over my life when they happen. And yeah, um, and I think that's that's also the... You've seen the consequence of what happens. Oh yeah, and you don't pay attention to that stuff. Yeah, I've seen firsthand what happens when you, uh, when you don't address your mental health, and so that's why I've become so passionate mm-hmm. about even with my friends. Like, like I've told friends before when I notice multiple occasions when I notice, especially with alcohol, but just in general, like behavior of hey, you know, and not in a judgmental way, but in a in a concerned way of like, hey, this is something that I've noticed. I don't know if you notice it in yourself, but like, you know, you might want to think about, you know, I've noticed that maybe you drink a lot when you're stressed out, or I notice that you drink a lot when you're super anxious, or, you know, you do other things that are maybe not so great for you and a little more self-destructive. And then it opens up that dialogue. Like I had a friend come, come to me at one point and talk about, you know, I, I kind of told him that, like, I know he he had struggled with some mental health stuff in, in general and whatnot, and um, and he had come to me and, and said, like, what do you notice about my stuff? And we had an open conversation about, like, I noticed that sometimes when you get anxious, you reach for a drink before anything else, you know, and that not saying mm-hmm. that, not saying that that in and of itself is always a bad thing. But when it becomes a pattern and a consistent habit, it can lead to a much yeah. worse problem. So like, and, and it's, you know, again, no, it's, it's not a judgment thing. It's just a point it out so that maybe you become more aware of it. And then you become more self-aware when it does start to become more of an issue, if it starts affecting your life or that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think the true defi- the true definition of, you know, when it, when anything, when any habit crosses over into addiction is, you know, the key characteristics of it is it's out of control. You can't control it. Um, and that it is having a negative impact on your life. So whether it be your personal relationships, your finances, your work, um, whatever, but it's, 
literally causing negative things to happen in your life, that's when it becomes a problem, you know? So if it's not affecting your life in a negative way, and you have to be honest with yourself, you have to be self-aware. You can't just pretend like you're fine and expect that to be an accurate assessment. But like, if you really take inventory and go, yeah, you know, I don't really treat people very well if I take XYZ or I drink this much, or I've missed a lot of work because I'm hungover, or um, I have a habit of like binge drinking on the weekends, you know, partying and uh, maybe I don't drink, a, you know, I that, don't drink very often, but when I do, I drink a lot to where I black out and I don't know what exactly. I'm doing. You know, all of those, mm-hmm. and, th- and 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 that doesn't just stand for alcohol, that it, that stands for anything. It's anything, yeah. You know, helping people become more self-aware in those aspects, and, and I think it's very important if you, when you learn how to cope properly and you learn how to manage your mental health in an effective way, one of the first things, especially like in therapy and stuff, the, the part of the point of therapy is to help you self-analyze. Um, because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't really know how to do that in an effective way or are not honest with themselves. So like therapy oftentimes mm-hmm. functions as a mirror where you start talking about your problems and the therapist can say, well, have you thought about it like this? Or why do you think you do that? Or why do you think, uh, that, you know, your first inclination is when you're in that situation is to reach for alcohol or do whatever you do. And it serves mm-hmm. as a point of self-analyzation. And once you understand yourself and why you do certain things, then you can start to mitigate or or change those behaviors. But oftentimes people don't even realize that they're doing it until it's too late. And I think that was the case with yeah. with my dad is he didn't even mm-hmm. realize his behavior no. was potentially problematic or affecting his life until everything blew up all at once. It was and until it was too late. And I think um, that's, you know, the it's just the important thing to remember, you know, that like it, it can blow up and I totally lost my thought. <laughs> I think it's important to remember that we're all human and we're all imperfect. And, you know, especially in the society we live in or just in daily life, whatever, it's very easy to fall into those patterns for anybody, literally anybody. Um, to, to fall into yeah. those unhealthy patterns or to, to, you know, do self-destructive behaviors or whatever. Um, and oftentimes we don't understand ourselves well enough to pinpoint why we're doing it. And so the more, yeah. and, and again, this is part of the whole reason why at least I'm so passionate about mental health and like understanding yourself is so that you can do that self-analyzation of and then you can benefit yourself because of it. You can make your life better mm-hmm. because of it. Because once you understand yourself, you can start to make changes uh, that are a lot healthier for you and will ultimately in the long run yeah. lead to longevity and to a better life, you know, more successful life. Um, but you can't get there unless yeah. you know yourself well. Yeah. And I think that's another – I mean, it's – I also have been – very passionate about mental health. I think that's why you and I were really felt a strong urge to do this podcast. Um, 
it, I've been affected by mental health issues my entire life. Not, I mean, obviously my own, uh, as a result of these things that have happened, um, and a few other things, but like just even growing up in an environment where everyone around me suffered with some sort of mental health issue. And, um, so I've always been super passionate about it as well for those reasons in that I do think not talking openly about it um, and the stigmas that happen, it really isn't helping anybody. It like all it does is further isolate people um, mm-hmm. and make them feel less than, which doesn't, it doesn't fix the problem. Um, and it certainly doesn't make anyone want to, you know, c- try to get help. And I think the other important thing to remember is like when we're saying, you know, we try to practice or like you're focused on like healthy coping mechanisms and I try to practice healthy coping mechanisms by no means is that easy. It is not an easy thing to move through your pain and address uh, uncomfortable emotions head on, whether it be anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, anger, etc. So, you know, we don't say healthy coping mechanisms flippantly. It's a difficult thing to do to be self, to practice self-awareness, to ask yourself the hard questions, to choose to face maybe the things that are not so healthy about yourself and make those changes. It's a scary, it's a lifelong. It's a scary thing to address you know, the demons you have inside of you because, it, 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 and mm-hmm. oftentimes that's why many people become very judgmental of others because they don't want to fix their own issues. They don't want to look at themselves. Yeah. So they project onto others rather than looking at a mirror and, and trying to fix whatever they have going on. But it, it's it's a terrifying it's- thing to to face, your to look at yourself in a mirror and notice all of the imperfections and have to face them head on because it's uncomfortable and you know Mm -hmm. there's all of these feelings of guilt and shame and uh fear of the unknown and you know even again in in my dad's case like part of the addiction brain and part of his issue with being resistant to a lot of things is i don't know how to cope without alcohol it's the only thing that i know how to do um, it's the, or it's the only yeah. thing that makes me feel better. And so how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to face life without the one thing that allows mm-hmm. me to do that? And that's obviously a flawed way of thinking, but in that moment and in his position, everything else is unknown. It's staring into the void and saying, I, you know, and trying to take that first step of, I have no idea where I'm going. Yeah, it's either that, it's the fear of unknown, and, you know, again, like we said with your dad, he had no reference point to understand that being on medications or going to therapy would help him feel better, right? Um, And so, you know, it is hard work to maintain healthy, um, you know, coping mechanisms, healthy emotional state. Um, It's not an easy thing to do requires ongoing effort. Like you constantly are working on it. It's not something that you just fix and it's like, okay. And it is easier. It would, it's so much easier to just 
pick up something and have an immediate instant gratification of it just making you feel better. Unfortunately, you know, the healthy way of dealing with things that ultimately benefit you in the long run sometimes are painful in the short period or very, very uncomfortable. So, you know, we don't... we don't say coping mechan- healthy coping mechanisms lightly because we also, I mean, I to this day am still struggling with things and I have to actively work on it every day. I think that's one other, I mean, me too, obviously, but I think that's one other interesting point is that it's, e- especially when it comes to addiction and that sort of thing, but, but generally, and most people do this, it's e- people reach for instant gratification because it feels good in the now mm-hmm. and they often are short-sighted and don't think about how it will affect them in the future and that's what makes healthy coping mechanisms and dealing with your mental health and all that stuff and and you know dealing with your past traumas and actually addressing and processing them so difficult is because on one hand you have instant gratification things that will make me feel better right now but ultimately won't mm-hmm. benefit me in the long run versus things that are going to be really. And could actually. Right. And could actually make things worse. Right. But right now it feels good versus mm-hmm. things that are difficult, things that are painful and hard to deal with and diff- and and a scary thing to face right now. But if I do that difficult thing in the long term, my life is going to be better. Majority of people would rather feel comfortable now and deal with the rest later because they don't think about the, the future and, and how it will affect them in the long run. And um, I think that that's, I mean, that's just human nature at this point. It's not, it's, yeah, uh, it's a very difficult thing. Well, to it's, overcome. It's, a, it's a societal thing too. I mean, oh, yeah. we live in a country where everything is at your fingertips and that crosses over into, you know, this type of thing as so, well. So I think, yeah. So let's let's you know, next episode we'll talk about what that process looked like for my dad post detox. That was the very mm-hmm. first step. Now he was in this point of trying to navigate all of those things that we just talked about, trying to figure out healthy coping mechanisms, yeah. trying to, you know, get on medications to control his anxiety so that he could function in daily life, trying to um learn about himself and become more self-aware and become more attuned to his behavior and to his inner mental health and um, to his inner self and to potentially deal with a lot of the trauma that he likely had as, as a a child and and into an adult and all of the things that were weighing on his mind, what that looked like post detox, post addiction. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. So until next time, stay tuned. Hey, you know how this works. If you like this episode or just like us in general, you can find us at It's Going Podcast on all the things. Don't forget to check out the links in the description. And thanks for hanging out with us.